be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we do consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the 17th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 17, often known, depending where you look, as season 2, episode 10, episode 18, or what the German regionalization team named Dispute Between Brothers. I'm your host, John. So a bit of bureau business, back at the end of August, I was on Manners and Madness, uh, their season two wrap-up episode. It's always nice uh, talking with Christian and Maya, and they, they are wonderful people, and um, I always feel so at home though, there. It was um, it was just really nice to talk about the, uh, the, the part of season two that I'm going to be dealing with here in, um, <laughs> in Blue Rose Task Force, and uh yeah, it's um, it was it was fun. It it had a it had a, a happy vibe to it. It was only about an hour, so <laughs> yeah. If you're looking for a preview of uh, what I'm going to be doing and uh, just in general meeting uh, meeting Christian and Maya, that would be a really good way to go about it. And uh, yeah, hi guys. And as far as what I mean about the uh, future episodes of this series, um. This is the uh, the point in Twin Peaks where there's a quote-unquote common consensus that um, this is the beginning of bad Twin Peaks. So, um, you know, essentially what we have is there's this vocal portion of fans that were so offended by the new direction that, um, you know, they, they, they actually skip a few of these uh, upcoming episodes and uh, you know, they, they attempt to convince anyone who will listen to also skip, you know, eh, I don't know. I've listened to enough twin peaks podcasts over the years where, um, you know, their newbies actually happily continue to watch, you know, it might not be as, uh, as many highs as, you know, twin peaks has had up till now, but there's enough to enjoy where, um, they actually do enjoy it all the way through. So, you know, stick with me. You know, we got, we got uh, Dishon in the percolator, you know, Sean, he's the veteran from, you know, like he, he watched the same time I did. And, um, you know, we've got his co-host Dallas. Um, and Sean thought that Dallas was being facetious when Dallas actually said, you know, it's like, no, I'm, I'm really liking the new direction, you know? And, uh, the way he put it, you know, he can't, 
he came to like the town more than uh, more than he had who killed Laura Palmer. And uh, Dallas said, they made me fall in love with the characters and now we're getting the characters. So, yeah, there, there's still a lot to like. And, um, you know, sure, you know, the, the character work is essentially the same as, you know, what we've known up until now. And um, I, I just think it's a little bit more out of balance with, um, you know, lowered stakes and, you know, less exploration of direct darkness. But, um, you know, if, if you're, uh, <laughs> if you're prone to say that the next handful of episodes are quote unquote bad, you know, stick with me because I will treat the show fairly when it stumbles, which, you know, it does. Um, but you know, I'm also going to shine lights on where it actually succeeds and, you know, where also that we can see the presence of the woods underneath the surface of this show. And um, I kind of think that, you know, with the way this show recovered at the end, that um, there's this hidden level of supernatural that's affecting the town and the show's tone that um, leads actually to a lot in common with 2017 Peaks. So, yeah, stick with me. As for this episode in particular, in episode 17, Sarah Palmer gets brave and wants to remember everything about Laura and Leland, and Cooper tells her how Leland is completely innocent, but the ceiling fan is on at the time. The scene skips Leland's funeral to go straight to the repast or the wake at the Haywards, where Dwayne and Dougie Milford scrap, Nadine worries about her reflective shoes, and no one mentions Leland or Maddie. Cooper says goodbye to Audrey. Nadine is enrolled in high school and tries out for cheerleading. Bobby unsuccessfully tries to blackmail Ben Horn. Catherine and Josie reveal themselves to Harry, Dick, and Andy fight over Lucy. And Roger, <clears throat> excuse me, and Roger Hardy suspends Cooper from the FBI, but Hardy's Mountie associate is actually working for Jean Renault, who is masterminding a revenge scheme against Cooper which will involve Ernie Niles, who is left behind by Norma's mean mom when Norma kicks her out of town. Harry gives Cooper a fishing lure, and Cooper goes night fishing with Major Briggs, who is abducted mysteriously. So, you know, a path is formed by laying one stone at a time, and um, it leaves us with some questions. So, what questions are we left with with this episode? Okay, what can happen in three missing days? What cycles are closing? What cycles are beginning? And how do we see the supernatural in this episode? So before I go into theories or anything like that, we've got, or, you know, even looking at the thematic work, we've got all this production history that was going on around the time that this was actually being made. So we're going to look into that first. And um, yeah, so this episode was written by Trisha Brock. And it was directed by Tina Rathborn. And, you know, right off the bat, we can't even get out of credits before something decent actually happens in this episode when they don't credit uh, Piper Laurie as Mr. Tojimura. So, you know, that's a victory right away anyway. Um, <clears throat> but as far as the staff goes, um, that was probably <laughs> the... Uh, the least of their concerns because they had a lot to worry about. I mean, Philip Carneal, who worked in the production department, he, uh, he was, uh, talking to Brad Dukes in reflections about how, um, 
you know, I mean, there, there's there's all these um, feelings of now what after, you know, who killed Aura Palmer? And uh, Neil said, everything that drew the viewers in to want to watch it was taken away. You solve that crime and you gave to revamp and and you have to and you have to revamp and start another mystery. The network basically hijacked the show and said, come up with a new series. And that is unfair to do. And in Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes, which was written, um, you know, concurrently with these episodes, probably, and published in December of 1990, um, you know, probably as this episode was airing, uh, we got Bob Engels on record saying, Twin Peaks is perched on mighty fertile turf. There is a lot of dramatic acreage that we will continue to plow. We're not going to change what our franchise is. We have a wide open landscape. So, you know, he's um, he's doing the um, OK, let's, um, you know, let's make a good go at this. And uh, he comes from Wise Guy, which also had to do these kind of things. And uh, Engels made a comparison to this. You know, he was talking about how there was this this popular steel grave story arc. And, you know, the the sh- the uh, the arc ended and. um you know, what they did on Wise Guy was they moved the main character to a new location for a new story. But I mean, of course, here, you know, they have to stay in town because the town is Twin Peaks and that's where the characters are. Like, you know, Dallas from Dish Inn and the Percolator was talking about, you know, it's like we, we have people that we are supposed to stay paying attention to. So um, what they what they all kind of did as a group, uh, the writers, I mean, um, decided to, um, you know, move new people in. And that seemed like the good approach to go about. So, you know, hence all the upcoming guest stars and uh, the couple that we've already gotten, you know, like uh, Roger Hardy being, um, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember his name right now, but uh, I will get there next episode. Um, he he was a uh, co-star with Peggy Lipton uh, back in the Mod Squad. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's reasons why they bring in uh, guest stars sometimes. Uh, from a meta standpoint and um, yeah so anyway that that was um, one of the reasons why we get a whole bunch of guest stars coming up and um, as far as how frost talked about this um, in reflections uh, in you know 2014 he said on reflection we might have done it differently if i had to do it over again we would have moved Wyndham Earl right into the aftermath of the ne- of that next episode or maybe jumped ahead in time. Okay, so as far as the storylines that they choose here, um, you know, Frost basically seemed to be operating around a cancellation prevention strategy because, yeah, I mean, ABC was lukewarm about this anyway. You know, they put it on a Saturday night time slot before, um, before they even started making season two. Um, you know, but the meddling had gone up at this point. I mean, you know, the there there's this um there's this massive sign of actual network meddling that I'd never heard before in uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped by uh, you know uh, by Durant and uh, Kazaska, where uh, the director Tina Rathborn, um, you know, she said to them that you know she instinctively dwelled on these Im- on images, but ABC gave her notes this time. Uh, you know, cut this and cut that. And she said, ABC hugely re-edited it. The cut that we did, I felt was so much more emotional, much closer to the bone. 
So I don't understand that because I know the directors were all allowed their final cuts, but I kind of feel like she went with the notes that ABC gave her. You know, were, were these um, <laughs> were these influx of notes a reaction to the extremes in Lynch's episode 14? Probably not, because it sounds like he would have held those off even after this episode was completely written. Uh, could it have been a reaction to the fact that Lynch was still withholding episode 14 from the network? You know, were, were they on edge and feeling like they needed to exert some control? Or was this a direct response to the first 15 minutes of of uh, the season two premiere with the uh, with the waiter and the uh, the massive amount of people that turned off the show after that uh, first commercial break? I kind of think it's probably related to that when ABC decided, you know what? Okay, we got to do something here. These guys are just, you know, they're doing it for the art. They're doing it for the love. You know, they they're not concerned about, you know, commercialism or keeping their show um, on the air being funded by advertisers. But, you know, I mean, that that's that's my hypothesis at this point, based on what I've seen already from them. But, you know, okay, aside from this network pressure on Frost, you know, the the ratings were sliding. And, you know, I mean, the season premiere, to, you know, the, the season two premiere, I just talked about how it had underperformed after its first commercial break. And, um, you know, the, the episodes um, that were being plotted right after that happened was, you know, th I mean, th this is one of them. You know, I mean, this was probably the first one that was completely written and produced during the air, the air. <clears throat> during the airing of episodes nine through 11, because this was being, uh, th this was being written all the way through October, essentially. So, you know, while that is happening too, that means we're watching more ratings drops, you know, it's like we're watching at least a million viewers a, a week, you know, just jettisoning themselves from the show. And, you know, the critics were also turning on it. You know, it's like they're, you know, they, they were all like, you know, it's like, this show is great. It's so subver subversive. But, you know, now they're talking about how it's meandering. And, you know, it's like, oh, just tell us already. Um, yeah. So and, you know, then there's the common viewer complaints that, you know, if you miss an episode, you're going to be completely lost. So, you know, that's kind of that's kind of explaining the shorter story arcs too and frost in twin peaks behind the scenes that one from 1990 um he puts in the stories after the murder thing will be in slightly shorter cycles it's not unlike what happened in hill street blues on the second season the story arcs tightened and scaled down a little bit so that people could come in and not feel quite so lost on twin peaks there will be some things that will spill over from hour, hour to hour. There will be very few episodes that will do that will just be one standalone self-contained episode. So we essentially have Frost, you know, kind of splitting the difference on this one. You know, it's like he understands that viewers of 1990 just don't have that kind of patience where they can watch a, uh, you know, a novel chapter by chapter, week by week. Um, like he was kind of intending season one to be so like the intent was actually to do shorter story arcs anyway but you know even with kind of understanding why we get these shorter kind of plots for a little bit um you know it's like why do they choose the uh the direction they actually went in and i think that's mostly because during episodes nine through eleven we've got audrey being captured by one-eyed jacks and cooper 
you know, her, um, her romantic interest essentially, um, is supposed to go in there and save her. And that's what, you know, the still engaged fans were talking about, um, you know, writing in letters and everything. So I think that's why they decided, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to do a romance and, you know, I mean, it'll lighten the mood and, um, that's kind of where the direction of the audience is heading. So let's give them something to cheer about. That pretty much leads us into the next Audrey Cooper storyline. This was before, you know, the early 2000s when um, characters on film were doing things like, you know, dealing with their trauma in a realistic kind of way. Um, you know, it's like Twin Peaks was didn't need to go into the ramifications of what happened to Leland because, you know, I mean, Twin Peaks had already told that kind of story. And I don't think viewers of the day would have really taken to it anyway. I mean, some would have, but, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, man, you told this story. Oh, I got to do something different with this. But, you know, I mean, not to mention that would require a ton of continuity to remember still uh, from a bunch of people that are already lost. So, you know. You, you still get the if you miss an episode, you may as well stop watching vibe. So um, and, you know, I mean, honestly, also the staff needed a break because as, uh, you know, Twin Peaks behind the scenes put it, the Laura Palmer storyline had become an albatross to the staff. So, you know, it's like they needed a break, too, from all the pressure. And, you know, they it's it's kind of like giving everybody a fresh start here. And, yeah, I mean, hence it, you know, turns into burying all the darkness so that, um they could pave a way for a romance arc. And, um, you know, Sherilyn Finn, she was all for this romance arc because, you know, she had no problem being at the center of the next pivotal storyline. Uh, you know, and, uh, Harley Payton, the writer, he was also for it, but, um, it's, uh, it's Kyle McLaughlin who didn't want it. And, um, okay. So Payton basically tells this story from reflections, um, about how, um, you know, they were going to try to convince Kyle McLaughlin to go along with this. Uh, uh, Peyton said, Mark said to me, look, we're going to have, we're going to have Kyle come up and we're going to draw the line and tell him he's got to do this. Then after a lot of peaceful talking, they come out and say, ah, we're not doing it. They drew a line for Kyle not to walk across and Kyle walked across it rather effortlessly. And that was that. So the story went away and they scrambled a bit. Harley Payton and Sherilyn Fenn both blame McLaughlin's then girlfriend, Lara Flynn Boyle, who plays Donna, um, you know, her her rufflings for McLaughlin turning on the storyline. And, you know, I mean, sure, I think that helped a lot. But um, I think I think McLaughlin knew that Cooper was the stand up guy who wouldn't take advantage of an innocent girl like that. And I mean, if you look at Audrey and Annie, you know, Audrey um would only have trauma in her life due to Cooper. But Annie has already had enough trauma that she's attempted suicide before she even met Cooper. So, you know, like there's this purity thing that Cooper has that um, would also kind of keep uh, Cooper away from Audrey. You know, versus his future romantic arc that a lot of people complain about. You know, it's like, oh, well, she's younger and everything. Yeah, the actress is younger than Sherilyn Fenn. You know, Heather Graham is. Okay. Um, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> I I kind of, oh, okay, I, I basically made my point on that anyway. I'm not going to keep uh, <laughs> any Audreying <laughs> for a while. Um, I, I What I am going to do is I'm going to go back to the Diane tapes that I talked about a little while ago. And um, I mean, remember how that entry with Audrey went. Um, 
you know, Cooper basically says, you know, she wants to play detective, wants to help with the investigation. Um, and then, you know, he says, I'm sure it's a young girl's romantic fantasy to her. She's 18, by the way, last August uh, the 24th. I must remain alert and cautious in this area, Diane. She clearly doesn't understand the dangers involved, both physical and emotional. So, you know, he thinks that she's immature. Um, so, you know, he knows exactly how old she is. Um, you know, so there is a certain kind of attraction that he would point that out, but he also has her pegged as an immature innocent, you know, not grown up enough to be involved with her. You know, she, she hasn't ever had even, even a one true love at this point that would, um, you know, give her grounds of understanding. Yeah. You know, he, he basically in the Diane tapes, you know, he mentions, you know, uh, there, there was a night of malts, fries and being in need of friendship with a chat for over an hour. So, you know, I mean, this, I kind of think at the time I said it and I still mean it that, you know, this was in universe proof that, um, that Cooper wouldn't be interested in taking advantage of Audrey officially. You know, I, I kind of think that McLaughlin having read this for the Diane tapes, because it was an audio book, um, McLaughlin would have noticed that, Cooper felt this way about Audrey and wouldn't actually want to get involved in her. As far as what McLaughlin said himself in Reflections, uh, you know, again, from around 2014, uh, McLaughlin said, Sherilyn was sort of the femme fatale of the piece, and her fascination with Cooper was a sort of fun to experiment with, but it was also, I think, a direction and a diversion that was only going to play out for a certain amount of time, being that she was a high school kid. But it was fun to watch that relationship and Cooper's reaction to it and what he was feeling, certainly as a man and as an FBI agent and almost as a possible father figure, but not exactly. So, yeah, the whole father figure vibe that he does give off even before this. Yeah, it would it would make it a little weird. And um, agreeing with that is, uh, you know, Dwayne Dunham, one of the one of the main directors and editors, you know, in, in reflections, he says, Cooper's an FBI man and Audrey's a high school girl. That just wouldn't work. And as far as how Frost actually saw it back then, um, in conversations with Mark Frost by David Bushman, uh, Frost said, the objection Kyle mentioned to me was that Audrey had just turned 18 and an upright straight arrow like Cooper shouldn't take advantage of her crush on him. I accepted that as a legitimate reason and moved on. I've never asked Kyle about the other scenario, and I respect him too much to give it credence. But this happened after the scripts had already been written, and it contributed to a lot of scrambling to come up with another story quickly. The script had already been written. Frost just said it. So that also explains a little bit of, um, you know, why this episode is kind of the way it is. Um, and it also explains why it took like four to five revisions and four to five weeks, uh, or I mean like, you know, three to four weeks just to actually write this episode. So when you have to throw out a romance subplot that's kind of anchoring the tone of this episode, what do you do? Where do you go? You know, the, the show was moving at the speed of television and it needed to be made in a specific time and it was probably already running late by the time they finished it. So they had to kind of make make moves on the fly quickly, you know, but where where do they find the new storyline? Um, well, it's in the same previous material where the Audrey and Cooper romance would have come from. It's it, they they decided to go with one eye jacks as its root. You know, instead of Audrey, Audrey's tormentor, Jean Renault, 
who, you know, who, who, um, already had a grudge against Cooper. And, um, in, again, in conversations with Mark Frost, uh, Frost said, but the upshot of it was that we had to advance the Wyndham Earl story faster than we'd planned and come up with the Michael Parks storyline as the dominant narrative of that arc over the next three episodes, which also brought Duchovny's character into the show. All those details right there. You know, we and anybody who's still lamenting the uh, the Audrey Cooper romance that never was, we actually got Denise Bryson from it. So uh, not not a terrible trade. All right, so now we're getting actually a little bit closer to the actual nuts and bolts of this episode. We've got um, Trisha Brock. This was her first writing credit. This is her first script. She was um, she was actually married to Harley Payton at the time. You know, it's like just because she started out as a writer here because of him, that doesn't mean anything. And what she ends up doing is she turns into a director over time, and then she's working on shows like Community. She's working on shows like... Uh, uh, you know, Breaking Bad, I think, you know, it's like all these, um, all these shows that, um, are fairly important, you know, she's, she's directed a handful of them, you know, just, just because of the, you know, quote unquote sloppiness of this, uh, episode, don't blame it all on Trisha Brock because she's got the stuff. Now I, I wasn't able to find too much on Trisha Brock at all. So I, um, I, I looked at what Joel Bacco had written about her in uh, his Lost in Twin Peaks podcast or, you know, his Lost in the Movies Patreon. You know, he, he basically couldn't find anything for his show either. He remembers interviews and he did recall them where Brock was given this well-determined batch of plot points like most writers were given on the show. And, you know, she was just tasked to connect the dots between those plot points. Um, and then, you know, she was getting confused by all the new character directions. Uh, because, you know, we're in that reboot territory of um, a whole bunch of characters, you know, new storyline, new new characters, you know, just like soap operas. Um, but um, so she um, had a little bit of backup uh, from from her director, Tina Rathborn, um, who um, who interpreted all these late changes in direction more as a neglect on the show um again in twin peaks unwrapped she said i think trisha brock's script was excellent the fact is i don't know as it says created by david lynch and mark frost how deeply they're involved in that second season and saying to the writer what they want from the script so um you know regardless of rathborn's reasoning on that you know like she didn't necessarily know about all the rewriting and the uh the scrapped romance arc um you can see how the uh, the disorganization of that you know of the quick change like really uh put off Tina Rathborn and um you can kind of see the morale shifting on set with everybody too so yeah now that we're officially in Tina Rathborn's uh, section she said that um in reflection she said the second episode, meaning Rathborn's second episode after the one that she did uh, around the funeral in season one, she said. The second episode, I really didn't enjoy making, and I think you can tell. It's a fight between two brothers. This is a very deep occasion. And, you know, in a nuts and bolts way, I can understand what she's talking about with the tone of um, the, the everybody calls that scene the wake. But I think it's actually a repast because a wake happens before a funeral and a repast can happen right afterward. And it's, you know, a community gathering after the fact. So I'm gonna I'm gonna alternate between calling it a repast and a wake. 
uh, you know, depending on <laughs> what it is. But, you know, that that's what I mean by it. You know, OK, from a nuts and bolts point of view, we've got this change in tone so that a romance storyline can actually kind of, um, you know, feel like it's in keeping with everything going on around it. Um, you know, so, I mean, it makes sense to drop the trauma narrative. And, you know, again, you know, the staff needs a break. Everybody needs a break. The television viewers need a break from, you know, the the heavy stuff and a fresh start. So, you know, um, you know, we have that for why we've got, you know, the brothers fighting and everything. But um, why else would the the tone be like that with all the characters around there? I mean, what? Look at the look at it this way. When this episode was being made, it was still during the time when um, when there was serious, um, you know, looking for clues around the um, around the reveal of the killer's identity. So they still needed to be kind of locked down on the set. And, you know, we've got it. I mean, sure. Okay. Episode 16 had already been filmed. And, um, you know, so the Leland scene had already been there. But I mean, if, if you look at that scene, all they had on set was uh, Richard Bamer, um, you know, Ray Wise, Kyle McLaughlin, Michael Onkeen, Michael Horse, and uh, Miguel Ferrer. That's it as far as the cast goes. You know, it's like they can all kind of keep a secret. But in the episode 17 wake scene, you know, the whole town was there, including a known magician actor, Ricky Jay, playing the part of Dougie Milford. So, you know, it's like I would love to know based on that huge amount of cast, you know, it's like, did the actors even know who they were supposed to be mourning or if they were supposed to be mourning? So, you know, I mean, we've got it from all sorts of ways. Why that why that wake and repast scene is kind of way off character for everybody and you know rathborn isn't down on the whole episode you know i mean she thinks the doc hayward scene with i mean the uh the doc hayward and sarah palmer and uh, agent cooper scene you know she said that was a very beautiful scene but you know in reflection she says my episode needed to have been an explosion an unexpected rocket that was launched that would carry us through and the FBI firing Cooper is definitely not that. It's more about him saying goodbye than it is re, uh, recommencing from a story standpoint. It didn't feel powerful enough to regenerate the audience's feeling of where's the puzzle. And, you know, I'm going to put a note in here where, you know, there's also no dread or foreshadowing of the Briggs abduction. You know, it's like there's no buildup that, um, you know, there's something um, creepy in the woods that is going to do something by the end of the episode. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it's like between all of that, you know, it's like there, there was no, there's something happening, isn't it, Margaret? You know, it's like um, essentially what ended up happening, you know, it's like Rathborn's disheartened, but what that ends up kind of doing is instead of her, you know, figuring out a way to uh, up the creep factor, um, you know, like in between scenes or something, uh, to, to keep the tone kind of balanced in a Twin Peaksy way. Um, it ends up just being a jump scare when, um, when Briggs gets abducted. And you can kind of see that with more of what Rathborn says. She said, the emotion had gone out of it for me. When I did my episode, I was not very compelled to see the series to the end. And, um, you know, she continues to say, Laura's funeral was a really huge emotional well, whereas Leland's wake I felt was pretty incidental emotionally. 
So to me, the two of them aren't in the same realm. The death of Leland carries the same weight as Laura Palmer, yet her funeral was not played up for any humor. The old brothers fighting in the wake sticks out to me as strange, which was a precursor to a lot of over-the-top humor. It feels like one of the moments where Twin Peaks changes, and it does. And, you know, I mean, how much of that is the actors just not supposed to be knowing who's the, you know, who the who the the ceremony is for or, you know, who the gathering is focused around? You know, it's like, whatever. But, you know, earlier I, I read something that Rathborn said that, you know, it's in part because Lynch wasn't on site for this episode. And, you know, it's probably... And it wasn't because he was making Fire Walk with me. I mean, that's been debunked uh, repeatedly on this show. And, you know, that's like really old news around the pilot. So, uh, yeah, I think he just needed some time away after they killed his golden goose. Uh, you know, and, and he will be seen in the offices later. You know, I'll I'll point out when actors place him in the offices during the production, even a few episodes from now, before he returns as Gordon Cole. But, you know, it is interesting, you know, even though even though Lynch had nothing to do with planning these plot lines in this episode or, you know, for the next couple, the the show was doing the exact same thing that Lynch was doing, which was dodging around the material that had come before it. As a viewer, I certainly felt uh, Lynch and Rathborn's dejectedness. But, yeah, I mean, I wasn't exactly feeling I I couldn't put my finger on, you know, what it was. But, you know, as a viewer, I was losing momentum and, um, you know, I, I, I kind of felt like the first two acts, the show was actually giving me permission to say goodbye to it too. When Cooper was disconnecting from the town in the first two acts and, you know, instinctively, I, you know, it's like, I guess this was time when it's, you know, okay to say goodbye. And I did stay with the show for the next couple episodes, but you know, in the years between when I first watched these and um, when I saw it again in 1995 on Bravo, you know, I, I barely remember anything from this episode besides the Briggs abduction. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it is what it is. And, um, you know, it, it, at the time um, when I was watching it, um, it aired on December 8th of 1990. Uh, it had 11.1 million viewers, which is less than the week before's uh, 12.4 million viewers. But this wasn't a huge drop after the reveal. You know, I mean, this is just, um, you know, losing 1 million viewers a week, just like it was doing around the time that this episode was being created in the first place. Um you know, from a from a rating standpoint, the revealing the killer was not the factor that killed the show, but because of the November sweeps ratings boost that the killer reveal did give, um, you know, th this episode could have been yanked off the schedule um, because, I mean, this comes after episode 16, which is when Miguel Ferrar showed back up because his show that was supposed to be competing this season was also uh, pulled from the schedule right away. And that meant that, um, you know, had Twin Peaks been pulled off a little bit earlier, this episode might not have even been um, aired. Anyway, you know, I mean, that said, the ratings weren't great. You know, I'm not trying to say that, you know, it, it was doing uh, gangbusters or anything. You know, Joel Bacco notes that um, all the shows in the same time slot that garnered less ratings were canceled immediately or, you know, put on hiatus after this. 
And then he said that, you know, even NBC's American Dreamer, which had significantly better ratings than this Twin Peaks episode, also got pulled from the schedule after this aired. You know, I, I <laughs> did NBC just have higher standards? I mean, possibly. But, um, you know, the I, I kind of think that, you know, the goodwill that Twin Peaks had garnered at this point uh, from critics and viewers and uh, the fact that it did have a vocal minority of a fandom, um, I, I think that kind of kept the show alive all the way through February when it finally did get put on hiatus. Okay, so we looked at Twin Peaks from a point of view of of where it was when it was being made and right after it aired. And um, now we're going to look at the Log Lady introduction from when it re-aired on Bravo Network that um, is basically Lynch's final statement on the whole thing. And um, he says, comp- or well, I mean, Log Lady intro that was written by Lynch says, Complications set in. Yes, complications. How many times have we heard? It's simple. Nothing is simple. We live in a world where nothing is simple. Each day, just when we think we have a handle on things, suddenly some new element is introduced and everything is complicated once again. What is the secret? What is the secret to simplicity? To the pure and simple life? Are our appetites and desires determining us? Is the cart in front of the horse? So, yeah, I mean, you can hear the disappointment in that, you know, you know, complications set in, you know, and it's it's I'm assuming all the dramas that, you know, went in with the rewrites, you know, everything. But it's probably more so just about Lynch's feelings on his golden goose getting killed. You know, the the fact that he says nothing is simple and, you know, everything is complicated once again. You know, would that, um, you know, in. In this show, I mean, is the uh, the talk about the White Lodge stuff at the end, is that the complications, uh, you know, becoming, or, you know, is that the show becoming complicated again? Or, you know, is it still a little bit more meta than usual? Um, I kind of think the the words, our, our appetites, our desires undermining us, definitely being meta you know, relating to, you know, the audience wanting more, the critics, you know, the the a- ABC network response around the speed of production, you know, and, um, you know, Lynch's response to the lack of art involved in making television. I kind of think, you know, the fact that, you know, it's like wanting more television um, might have been what he was meaning about with the appetites and, you know, desires undermining us. But, um I mean, if you if you look at it from an in-show perspective, it also could easily relate to the um, the spiritual side of Twin Peaks running rampant over its residents when all they're working on is wants rather than needs. And, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's like I know that's my thesis more than Lynch's here, but I mean, it feels like it there's enough room for, uh, you know, nodding to that thought process over time. All right. As far as um, as the production side goes, I mean, I think the only thing we have left to do is look at the episode as a whole. So we're going to do that. But first, we're going to hear some words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, 
Come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, so welcome back. We are here um, officially looking at the um, at the scenes in um, in this episode of Twin Peaks, and um, I know I've explained, um, you know, how um, on the meta side of things, you know, like how uh, or in the uh, production history side of things, like why the decision was made to change. Um, you know, to change tone and kind of go away from where the um, darkness could also be included in Twin Peaks. But um, the the show basically does this weird thing, you know, right off the bat, you know, like once the credits stop, you know, we see the Palmer house, but then we see the words three days later. And, um, you know, like all the decisions are explainable how they happen, but, um, you know, like I, I don't know. I, this part troubles me more than pretty much anything else in Twin Peaks up to this point. And, um, you know, it's like, what is missing in three days? I mean, if, if you're looking at it from a nuts and bolts point of view, what's missing in the first three days is everything we saw in the pilot up through like halfway through, uh, episode three. So, you know, <laughs> what's missing? Oh, I don't know. All the stuff that made the show so compelling to everybody who was watching it. Um, you know, I, I get it from a writer point of view. It's like, you can't tell the same story over again right when you just finished that kind of story you know it's like they couldn't get away with doing it over again um you know especially since all of us viewers know the answer of you know <laughs> what went down yeah you know, I, I i could kind of see why they would think it's rehashing you know robert engels in reflections he talked about uh he, he talked about it in this way he said I think once the murder was solved, you couldn't write scenes that were about guilt. I always thought that's what drove the series. I don't know what David, Harley, and Mark thought, but I always thought that's what made the series work. You could always go pick a character from the town, and they all felt guilty about what happened. That was such a wonderful thing. That, of course, was gone. Looking back on it, that would be the most unsatisfying part of it. You lost kind of a weapon. And yeah, I mean, they, they lost their most important tool too. But um, yeah, I, I find it interesting that he actually comes right out and says that. We lost the tool. We lost the weapon. We, um, we missed the town reacting to Leland Palmer dying. You know, much less whether he is or isn't revealed as a murderer or, you know, how that puts closure on the Laura Palmer mystery for them. Um, you know, we miss Donna possibly realizing that she was near death the day she danced with Leland Palmer. 
the day she danced with Leland Palmer, hours before her death. We miss Sarah trying to grapple with the grief and the knowing. You know, I mean, sure, we see her afterwards in this scene when she when she wants to remember everything, but you know, not how she arrived at that state of mind. It, it um, I mean, it ends up feeling more empty and less like closure than it ought to have. And I think Grace Zabriskie kind of feels the same way as me. She said in Essential Wrapped in Plastic. I suspect there was no true closure to my character because it was not like having a fight and then you make up. It's a loss that doesn't stop. Closure is not something I would have been entirely comfortable with. There was a period when it was looking as if they were interested in possibilities for Sarah. I suppose once Laura's killer was known, I rather lost hope for everything for the series. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> that that kind of comes out in the fact that, you know, she's just not used anymore because, you know, Sarah wouldn't be able to move on to this new tone. They had to kind of leave her behind because, I mean, that's all she is is guilt in a lot of ways or, you know, that's the world she lives in. But, you know, more than that, like. It's it's even wilder that there's this full erasure of Maddie Ferguson. You know, I mean, she gets treated like every other TV heroine. I mean, a, t a TV victim. You know, Sarah Sarah literally says in this opening scene that, you know, I lost them both with, you know, nothing even said nodding to the character that we all spent time with. I mean, Maddie was on screen a lot. You know, she's she was part of a love triangle, you know, and then we get nothing here for us. Um, you know, she's just a victim. Uh, she's fridged. But, you know, I mean, it kind of makes sense because, you know, even Laura wasn't supposed to be this strong of a presence. You know, Tony Krantz in uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped, uh, he, he says, you know, the Laura murder was just supposed to be an exciting incident, was never meant to overtake the series, the country, the popular imagination the way it did. You know, Laura's murder was supposed to be the way that Maddie's murder was handled. Um and, you know, what every other murder on TV was doing. It was just supposed to be an inciting incident. And um, in Maddie's case, it was just supposed to be a closing incident. And then, you know, the creative staff kind of moves forward. Uh, and, you know, Maddie will never be mentioned again outside of episode 29, thanks to David Lynch. And, I mean, I think, I think James kind of like halfway mentions it, but, you know, he's not even in Twin Peaks at the time. So I kind of feel like... Um, you know, just like Agent Preston feels at the end of Final Dossier, that there's this weird cloud over Twin Peaks where you just don't mention stuff like that. Among other things, it's like you're not going to mention anything about Maddie. You're not going to mention that Sarah Palmer and Audrey Horn are sharing uh, spots on the same couch where, um, you know, Bob climbed over it in one of Maddie's visions. You know, it's like don't call attention to Maddie anywhere, not even with camera angles. Um, you know, everybody is intentionally looking away from that part of the trauma. Um, you know, the the horse is the white of the eyes. <laughs> like now we're we're apparently full on inside whatever delusion we're supposed to to get if we see a horse. Um, but you know, I mean, the, the town is doing this like 
in a in a codified kind of way. I mean, you know, we'll see uh, a little bit further on with the access guide about a passion play that's um, an event that happens like every five years or so. And it's a thing that happens. And it sounds like it's like some kind of theosophical thing that the Bookhouse Boys do to push back the darkness from the woods. But, um, you know, according to this, you know, in the town, like it, it's kind of an open secret that the mysterious Bookhouse Boys sponsor it. So, you know, it's like I think people actually see the darkness being fought against in town. But like now we are finally getting some episodes that kind of show us how the town deals with it by, you know, kind of ignoring it and letting it fester underneath the scenes and maybe come out through um, some magical realism that seems a lot more like farce than what it actually is rooted in. And, you know, every time you do come up against something, you know, like how um, Ben Horn kind of mentions in season three to Beverly Page about, uh, you know, Laura Palmer. And then she asks, you know, Laura Palmer? And um, his only response to that is, it's a long story. And then he looks away. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, I understand from a character standpoint, you know, this is the time when characters can kind of get these soft reboots, like what happened between seasons one and two. And, you know, in episode eight, we've got, you know, like Vamp Donna and you know, <laughs> things like that. You know, this is the time to reestablish characters in you know, their new storylines and their new styles. But, you know, we get a lot of characters looking past important things here and, um, you know, kind of a, a town-wide delusion. Because, um, you know, the show isn't writing about guilt anymore. It isn't dealing with any of the repercussions. And, um, you know, it's people hiding the guilt and paving over it. So, I mean, the show is still technically writing about guilt. They just don't necessarily know that they are they're just writing about the effects of guilt you know it ends up being you know like yeah i mean it, we get to see the town doing what doc hayward wanted to do um back when albert came to town and they were doing the autopsy you know it's like doc hayward wanted to bury laura before the evidence was sussed and you know that's you know, th this is that same kind of thing with twin peaks you know it's like everything's buried it's glossed over fridged it never had to have happened, you know, status quo achieved. And um, this time in this episode, there's no Albert to bring the truth closer to the surface this time. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So apparently Laura Palmer, the the only Twin Peaks victim possibly ever to not be fridged, is the one that can break through this kind of a want fulfillment. And, you know, now that Bob is free, um, flying as an owl or you know up in the sky in the air or whatever i know i've said it before but you know essentially now that he's out the want fulfillment is everywhere and um we're we're seeing its effects already and you know even after these three days that we missed you know it's like we we still miss even more um you know it's like we can't um we can't even see the funeral you know they they skip right over to the repast and um i was um I was listening back to our um, episode three uh, coverage where we did the original funeral, and um, this actually matches up. There, there is a repast that happens after um, after a funeral for uh, for the Palmer family's faith, and um, you know it, it's just interesting that you know we didn't get the repast in um, episode three, 
But, you know, here in episode 17, that's what we end up getting. We get the after effects. And, you know, it goes, um, the the camera just skips over any kind of closure we were going to get from the funeral, and it goes straight to moving on. You know, it, it you know, the, the interior of the Palmer house becomes the interior of the Hayward house and the credits start rolling. And, um, you know, it's like, it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't be so bad if, um, if when, uh, Dwayne and Dougie Milford were fighting and Harry breaks it up that, um, you know, Harry pays absolute lip service to remembering, you know, it's like, he, he says, remember where you are and why you're here. And I mean, I, that's unclear to everybody in that room, you know, you know, Doc Hayward and Pete, you know, it's like, they're just smiling and laughing about it instead of, you know, oh, I don't know, being around, uh, Sarah Palmer. Uh, (laughs) yeah, like it's just, um, yeah, it's like we should have had the funeral scene to cap things for us, too, including Maddie. Um, but, you know, why um, why are we getting this scene, you know, paying lip service to the fact that there used to be a murder in town? Um, you know, it's it's not to say goodbye to the bodies. It's about to say goodbye to Cooper, because what what the commercial break is led into is uh cooper just like really enjoying the uh the town dynamics of the two brothers fighting and he says harry i'm really gonna miss this place so yeah we're supposed to say oh no not cooper (laughs) anyway i think i've dwelled enough on all that stuff yeah so we figured out what this show is gonna be about this episode and it's about basically cooper saying goodbye and um there are a lot of cycles that are closing in this episode um you know, the, what um, what cycles are closing? Well, I mean, the first act closes off the Sarah, Laura, Leland, and Maddie uh, stuff, and I'll be discussing that a little bit closer, uh, you know, a little bit deeper, um, you know, later on. In the fourth act, we get um, Norma closing off uh, the story arc with her mother. Um, you know, like, <laughs> after Norma getting shamed by Hank uh, in the first, uh, in the first, scene at the repast you know we see hank putting waldorf salad on a plate and it looks like he's going to be helpful and you know he calls over norma um you know basically just to say that you know she's being disloyal with ed um and you know she's gonna uh, he's gonna show norma you know who really deserved a plate of food that he made yeah so like hank's just being like that and um that's kind of how we see norma just kind of I I guess caving to him in a way just because she doesn't make a scene or call him out about it. But um, in act four, she absolutely kicks out her mother because, you know, she demands that she deserves better. And, you know, she, she demands kindness and common decency. Um, so, you know, Norma has decided, you know, it's like, okay, this is how I deserve to be treated. And, um, yeah, she's making sure that she doesn't get treated bad, at least by her mother. The um, the majority of things that are closing off in this episode are in Act Two, and um, it's all related to Cooper. As you know, you know, viewers. I mean, but based on how that uh, that first uh, first act's commercial break ends, um, you know, it's like we're supposed to say goodbye to this guy, and um, and the uh, the first thing that he goes about. Um, you know, closing off 
is with Audrey. And, you know, she comes in to to his room in the Great Northern. And, you know, it's like basically, you know, she's um, in in this scene. Audrey is uh, getting a little bit of a soft reboot as well. You know, she's working for the hotel. She's not talking about her father anymore. I mean, that the the thing with her father got closed off in episode 15 at the end, right before uh, Cooper got the phone call about Maddie. So, you know, it's like all that stuff, um, as far as, you know, viewers from 1990 are concerned, you know, it's like that kind of um, questioning that Audrey felt about her father um, is basically done at this point. And, you know, she'll also never be the girl again who um, ever had to deal with her father at One-Eyed Jacks. You know, she's never going to suffer from heroin again. You know, it's like that was that was all done in episodes 14 and 15. You know, it's like <laughs> Audrey is now a businesswoman. You know, she's all um, Catherine Hepburn as a... Uh, as uh Sherilyn Fenn decided to change her wardrobe into you know it's like she she didn't want to be the sex kitten anymore she just wanted to be you know um you know like one of those uh you know ladies ladies um being all powerful and doing it for themselves kind of stuff and um yeah so like we're already kind of seeing her um in this new way, except she has to close off this crush that she has on Cooper. That's the only outstanding thing left for Audrey to be completely soft rebooted. So that scene starts, you know, it's like Cooper's looking at, um, at all. I mean, you know, he's folding his boxers, I think he's, um, he's packing a suitcase You know, he's already got a fishing vest on too, uh, for the, the later time with, uh, with Briggs. But, um, you know, Audrey, um, you know, the knock on the door, Cooper says Bellman and Audrey comes in and says, customer relations, uh, when are you leaving? And, you know, stuff like, so this is it. You save my life, then break my heart. And, <laughs> you know, then, then we get it like, you know, set in stone, um, you know, what their new dynamic is going to be. He says, Audrey, I've explained to you my personal policy about involving. And she interrupts him and says, yeah, I know I'm a teenager. And, um, then he says, and you were involved in a case I was working on. So, you know, this addition is added from personal trauma, at least just as much as, you know, his own ethics and power differential. Audrey's response to that was basically, um, someone must have hurt you once very badly. And, um, you know, then Cooper answers, no, someone was hurt by me and I'll never let that happen again. And, um, you know, she asks, you know, what happened? Does she die or something? And Cooper says, as a matter of fact, she did want to know how. And then he gives her all these details in a firm, somewhat blunt kind of way and says, Audrey, I like you and I care about you. I'll always consider you my friend. And then Audrey says, you know, friendship is the foundation of any lasting relationship. And Cooper says, well, it's nice to be quoted accurately. And, um, you know, then, <laughs> then, you know, the, the final uh, closing of the store is uh, when Audrey says, well, let me tell you something, Agent Cooper, one of these days before you know it, I'm going to be grown up and on my own and you'd better watch out. And, you know, Cooper's amused at this point and says, OK, Audrey, it's a deal. <laughs> and um, then we get this weird, <laughs> this weird <laughs> jump in logic for Audrey where she says, you know, there's only one problem with you. You're perfect. And she walks out. And um, that's not what I got out of what Cooper just told her. Um, but, you know, maybe 
maybe he's perfect because he let her down in an easy way with class and you know he kind of gives her respect that you know it's not just you know him not being into her i don't know but um you know once she leaves cooper's smile absolutely drops and you know he doesn't believe that he's perfect either and you know nor should he and um you know at this point we've got these ex uh, these uh echoey saxophones playing and um and a transition of the up close waterfall and um the echoey saxophone is used later too so this seems to note a huge loss for cooper or you know at least an important door is closing so yeah does that mean that's how cooper felt about audrey too or is that just what the staff and the viewers are supposed to think anyway this episode isn't just about cooper saying goodbye to audrey he also has to say goodbye to harry you know, I mean, they they play this absolutely smartly um, because, I mean, <laughs> that romance is pretty huge. So I'm glad they at least, you know, they, they don't give respect to Maddie, but they give respect to the characters of Twin Peaks otherwise. And um, it would have been really weird to not have this between Cooper and Harry. Um, you know, they're, they're in the sheriff's station um, and, you know, Cooper sees Harry and says, this is goodbye. And... Um, you know harry's bag that he walks in with a little bit earlier actually has a lure in it and you know the twin peaks theme is playing at the time during this scene and um you know cooper recognizes that it's a lure and um, i know tina rathborn knew that you know the tying of lures is actually a very time-consuming process and a very yeah i mean like there there is an art form to it so like she recognized that this was a huge thing for harry to do for cooper and um you know cooper seems to recognize it too and um you know harry says you know green butt skunk when those steelheads are running upstream they are only thinking about one thing sex a green butt skunk breaks their concentration and then, you know, Harry says he tied it myself. Um, you know, there's three generations of being taught how to tie it. And, um, you know, there are huge undertones felt between these two. And if people weren't writing fan fiction, uh, tying those two together romantically <laughs> um, before this point, uh, they definitely did by now. You know, like, I kind of wonder if, um, you know, like what, what, what harry might actually be saying to cooper here is you know it's like maybe before cooper came in all he could think about was you know sex with josie and then cooper is what broke his concentration and got him out of that at least you know you know temporarily here and there um <laughs> you know but i don't really think it's actually supposed to be a one-for-one -one comparison here i just think you know it's like huh i wonder <laughs> you know what other ways we can look at that you know because i mean fan fiction or not i'm really glad that their friendship is on display because um it, it's been said in a few other podcasts that you know there's non-toxic masculinity on display here where you know guys can actually just respect each other that deeply and i think that's honestly what's really happening here but you know it's um <laughs> you know whatever it is i'm really glad that they have the relationship that they have and um harry also gives um uh, gives cooper a bookhouse boys patch and um you know he tells cooper all of us agreed We're, you're one of us now and uh cooper shakes harry's hand and um you know then it shifts to the hallway where like you know there, there's no scenes in between these um you know it just shifts 
um, over to the hallway. And then we see uh, Hawk, Andy, and Lucy all lined up for Cooper to say something on his way out of town. And, um, you know, he tells he tells Hawk, Deputy Hawk, if I'm ever lost, I hope you're the man they send to find me. And, um, you know, he does, he does, um, you know, in, in part two of season three, Hawk actually does see the curtains where, um, where Cooper was. Yeah. It's like the, the curtains into the red room. Um, so this almost comes true, you know, except for, you know, possible rewiring or converging of realities or whatever that happens after that moment. But, um, yeah, it's like, we almost get a, uh, a moment where this becomes prophecy. And then um, Hawk just shares an Irish proverb, or I mean, I, I think it was Irish. Uh, yeah, but um, he says, you know, may the wind all be always at your back. And then Cooper goes over to Andy and says, Deputy Andy, your bravery is only ex exceeded by the size of your heart. A rare combination indeed. And, you know, I think, you know, that those are skills that are important to gaining audience with the fireman. And, um, you know, then he goes over to Lucy and says, Lucy, my best to you and yours. Now you'd better invite me to that wedding, whoever the lucky man might be. <laughs> it kind of seems like he was brushing her off in a way because he couldn't come up with anything fancy to say to her. But I mean, he is saying, you know, it's like, please invite me back here. I feel close enough to you that I would like to be at your wedding. I mean, so that's nice. And, um, you know, okay. And, you know, the fact that she hasn't been talking about a wedding, you know, it's like that Cooper's not exactly being puritanical here. He's just operating under cultural norms, especially of the time. You know, it's like in 1990, you um, you have a child, you are going to be married. I mean, that's just, you know, that that's just the importance of, um, you know, what it is to be a non-single parent uh, back in 1990, according to, you know, like, this is what everybody just assumes is the standard default setting. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, obviously a lot more complicated than that, but that's all that uh, 1990 was going to be able to give us. So that was just shorthand for, you know, please bring me back to town. And then, you know, that's when he kisses, uh, um, you know, that's a, that's when he kisses Lucy on the cheek. And, you know, immediately we get the sound of the doors uh, being opened and um you know cooper thinks that he's leaving town on his own volition at this point to get another case from the fbi you know it's a, it's a like it, it's a lot just like when um you know ben lost everything in episode 16 and then he finds out that he also didn't understand who leland was and that he loses leland too you know the, the, this is kind of one of those scenes because you know it's like cooper is leaving town and we're losing him and everything but he also loses his profession um you know because that's when roger hardy and mounty king uh pop in and and uh you know, Roger says, Dale, we've got a problem. Effective immediately, without pay, I regret to inform you of your suspension from the FBI. And then it goes into a commercial break. So, um, yeah, Cooper just lost um, his connection to the FBI because, you know, that's where he was supposed to be going into, not away from. And, um, you know, I mean, after all, he's got he's got a coffee cup. <laughs> it, it was there on the bed uh, of, of, you know, it, it's his own cup and it says FBI on it. Just like in uh, just like in part four, uh, you got, uh, you know, Cooper Dougie um, with a cup 
telling him, um, I am Dougie's coffee. You know, it's like, just like that. Um, we've got a cup saying Dale is FBI. And, um, you know, maybe that's why I am the FBI. You never know. But, um, in that case, you know, this is a huge severing and, um, yeah. So, you know, we think it's going to be Twin Peaks without Cooper. And it turns out we get Cooper, but he's without the FBI. All right. So that's a whole bunch of cycles that are closing. And now we're going to look at what kind of cycles are beginning. So, you know, before we get to Cooper, we've got Josie and uh, Catherine both returning. And, you know, they're both, um, you know, visually verified by uh, by Harry. Um, and, you know, now they're both here available for future storylines ready to begin. You know, we've got Ben Horn and Donna in holding patterns. You know, Donna and Ed talk, you know, James seems to think that two people in love could have caused all this. Uh, so, you know, it's like that's kind of establishing, you know, it's like, OK, Donna is missing a guy who um, is out of town. And, uh, you know, Ben's back in his office, though, you know, per per Mikey from Cooper Duper podcast, he's talking about how, um, you know, he's all scruffy and in a bathrobe and, you know, <laughs> not not exactly seeming solid here, uh, even even though he's only in, you know, five seconds. You know, it's like we get the impression that he's ready to be unhinged. So he's he's in place for a new thing, too. And, um, you know, we've got Lana being introduced through uh, Dwayne and Dougie. Um, you know, they're arguing on and off. And, you know, Dwayne's talking about how, you know, it's like he's uh, Dougie's going to have to learn how to change diapers. And, you know, it's like I think she's cursed, you know. So all these characteristics of Lana are being put there. And, you know, yeah, I've already talked how uh, Doc and Pete are there, like, not present for the funeral, but present for the brothers. And, uh, you know, they just kind of share um, details about how uh, Dwayne and Dougie have this running feud for over 50 years now, and they don't know how it started. And this is uh, Dougie's fifth time getting married. And, um, you know, Pete's saying that she's a teenager. Um, that's an exaggeration. Um, because, you know, 110 is also an exaggeration. You know, he made uh, Pete in his offhanded, you know, flipping comment, he uh, he made he made Lana younger and uh, Dougie older. We also get Lucy, Andy and Dick established as a trio in in here. You know, it's like we uh, <laughs> we shift to the other part of the uh, the sheriff station um, after after Harry and Catherine talk. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like we got Dick Tremaine entering and, you know, he, he calls he calls back to uh, episode 16 when he's smoking and he says, you know, good news. I've stopped smoking. So, you know, that's him closing off a cycle, too, in a way. Um, and, you know, this is him taking well to Lucy's words about, you know, become responsible. So, um, you know, is he actually trying to turn over a new leaf and uh, take, you know, you know, he 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 says that, you know, he wants someone to think of besides himself. So he decided to be a part time guardian to some homeless wife <laughs> and you know he's on the ladder with lucy but he's not helping her at all and you know andy comes in and finally interrupts them and you know he makes a play to not fight you know he, he's kind of establishing the ground rules that you know everybody's going to work together and everybody's going to be friends um until lucy has that baby because you know it's like we don't want to we don't want to mess with lucy and give her stuff to be upset about 
So, you know, he, uh, you know, Lucy is loving this. She wants to kiss him right there on the ladder next to Dick Tremaine even. Uh, but, um, you know, then Andy backs down the ladder, gets a handshake from Dick. And, you know, he, and, and, you know, note, he's also not helping Lucy change that light bulb. And then when he backs around the corner, <laughs> Hawk comes up and says, are you crazy? But, you know, Andy says, morals and manly behaviors will get Lucy. And, uh, you know, Hawk obviously doesn't think that Andy went far enough. But, you know, Andy, Andy, of course, freaks out and says, like, do you think I went too far? <laughs> So, you know, like that's that's going to be a fun dynamic. I actually really enjoy all that stuff. And, you know, sure, we're not getting it balanced out with darkness to kind of keep it there. But like Andy and Lucy and, you know, even Hawk have always kind of been in that category of, um, you know, like a straight man and with a whole bunch of nonsense around him and that meaning Hawk. Uh, so, you know, it's like that dynamic um, is just a, brought a little bit more in front of the camera now. And, you know, we've got um, Nadine officially um, entering high school. And I'll talk about that later. And then Bobby becomes, you know, he, he begins his stint as Ben Horn's boy with as much um, like magical realism kind of stuff, as much, um, you know, farce that seems to be kind of clouding over the town. It's really interesting that Bobby can't tap into that supernatural kind of, um, you know, want-based um, reality. You know, so he can't get that for his story. And, like, he's also nowhere near Act 1, which is, you know, the funeral and the, the wake and repast. You know, it's like this is, you know, for for being so tied to Laura and her family. I mean, that that's, that's quite an absence right there. You know, it's like, it almost seems like he was too much of a voice of truth, especially in that first funeral when, you know, he, he blames the whole town for, you know, it's like, we all know, we all knew what was happening and we didn't do anything, you know? So like, we can't have Bobby do that because now we're in a fun part of Twin Peaks. You know, I, I think it was a good instinct for the writers to keep him out of that for that purpose, you know, for their own purposes. That was a good way to achieve it. But, you know, like even here when he's trying to blackmail Ben Horn, you know, his authentic self is still cutting through his plans all the time. You know, it's like he's got the slick back hair, he's chewing gum, he's wearing Leo's oversized suit. And, you know, we've got Shelly absolutely not amused. And, you know, she's not even hyped about it. You know, she's like, eh, if it's Leo tighter, you know, it's like green or yellow tie, it doesn't matter to her at all. She just wants to, you know, like, she, she just asks him point blank. You know, it's like, can you please take me out tonight? I'll get all dressed up. And, um, you know, she just wants Bobby not this um you know darker side uh flirting you know flirting with the darker side blackmailer that you know we actually see in a mirror propped up on leo and <laughs> bobby bobby's not a leo like you know even when he dresses up as himself even when he sees himself you know from a mirror you know doing um negative things like, he's still just going to be Bobby. And, like, you know, Shelly's not being fooled by that. And, you know, like, even here, you know, Bobby doesn't even speak in dreams. You know, there's always somebody talking about, you know, it's like Dreamland or, you know, like, it, dreams are mentioned by name regularly. And, you know, here, you know, Bobby doesn't say, you know, like, you know, we're going to, you know, get all our wildest dreams or, you know, it's, it's nothing like that. He says, cross your fingers, cross your toes. This is the big time. 
So like he doesn't even use the word dream when he's trying to dream up a future. <laughs> and, um, you know, Shelley can't be under that spell when there's not even a mention of dreams, perhaps, you know, it's like, and, and, you know, Shelley kind of sees him in some other guy's suit and Audrey sees Bobby in a costume too. You know, and she's like, yeah, it's a little early for Halloween. You know, what are you, some kind of lounge lizard? So, and you know, Ben notices that he's not authentic as well. Uh, because, you know, it's like, he, he doesn't even look at Bobby for, you know, taking the blackmail seriously. He just says, you know, Samantha, there's a fly in my office. So, you know, he calls Bobby a fly <laughs> and, uh, you know, Audrey tries to help him. And, you know, she says, you know, give me 10 seconds. And, you know, then like when when, um, you know, she gets him in the door in the first place. And then when Bobby's manhandled out of the room, you know, then she's like, hey, he's a friend of mine. And, you know, she's curious because she knows Bobby Briggs and she wants to know what he's up to. And, you know, then they do this weird flirting thing about going out for ice cream, you know, which, you know, based on the fact that he goes missing the rest of the episode, where I think we're meant to assume that, you know, Bobby does this all afternoon with her, which explains the absence that Shelley's complaining about when we get the phone call from uh, Bobby. And we only see that from Shelley's side where, um, you know, she's brushing Leo's teeth and the phone's ringing and she's like, I'm not answering that uh, because, you know, Bobby hadn't called her back after that meeting went so poorly. You know, like it, basically we get um, a little bit of a tie because, you know, like Bobby, you know, said the meeting went well. And, you know, it's like I remember Stephen, uh, you know, Bobby and Shelley's daughter's man, quote unquote, um, also getting, you know, great feedback from Mike Nelson when he got completely dressed down. So, you know, there, there's certain uh, repeating, <laughs> repeating things uh, with season three. And like, it's kind of referencing that, like, this is not necessarily a, a great place for Bobby. And he's not in a good point <laughs> in his life. But, you know, she, um, you know, anyway, um, Shelly does answer the phone and, um, Part of what she talks about is, you know, she wants to put Leo in a home. And then she says, it's not worth it. I don't want the money. And this is when um, we see the wheel of the wheelchair begin to move slightly as we're watching Shelly on the phone. She says, you know, Bobby, I want a life. And this is then when she notices, you know, it's like he moved. Leo moved. And, you know, so Shelly's being more realistic about what's actually happening. You know, so she's waking up. And is that when Leo is also waking up? Are they kind of waking up to the same reality together, like in, in tandem, but also synchronized? You know, but, but what ends up happening here is like, you know, Leo, he's beginning to wake up. That's the cycle that's beginning here. And the first thing he hears is that Shelly says that she wants a life. Yeah, I mean, it goes into a commercial break there. And we don't get anything more from them. But it's about time to talk about all the cycles that are beginning with Cooper. You know, first of all, we get his backstory. You know, the we get, um, you know, my life, my tapes has been written now by Mark Fro uh, by uh, by Scott Frost, and um, you know they have the details to talk about it. And you know, Cooper talks to Audrey, you know, about about Caroline. He says she was a material witness to a federal crime. We were supposed to protect her twenty four hours a day. My partner and I, Wyndham Earl, was his name. He taught me everything I know about being a special agent. And when the attempt on her life was finally made, I wasn't ready because I loved her. She died in my arms. I was badly injured and my partner lost his mind. Need to hear any more? 
And, you know, the, the audience is supposed to say, yeah. <laughs> and I say, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like we get the short to the point backstory that's going to be extrapolated on later. And, um, yeah, and, and Rob King in his uh, 25YL article, Twin Peaks, episode 17, Mid-Season Mirage, he says, um, he, he connects another thing. He says, but the key question is voiced by Donna. Two people in love couldn't have caused all this, could they? We must turn to Cooper's story about Caroline to Audrey. The answer is, indeed, they could have. So, yeah, the um, the epic scale of Cooper's uh, previous love um, is beginning here. And, um, you know, Cooper's present storyline is the focus of Act 3 entirely, and that's all, you know, establishing what's going to happen to Cooper. You know, so Act 2 ends with Roger suspending Dale, and Act 3 has, uh, the next time we see Cooper, he's in a conference room next to a TV with the one-eyed Jack security footage of him at the, uh, at the uh, poker table. And, you know, he understands what's happening. You know, Roger is internal affairs. Um, you know, he talks about misfeasance, which, you know, is basically something that in itself isn't illegal, but it was done in an illegal way. And, um, you know, Cooper says it was the crossing the border into Canada for the rescue of Audrey Horn. But Roger adds um, that there's disturbing allegations of motives and methods. So, you know, they, they grill him and say, you know, it's like, what was the purpose of your first visit to One-Eyed Jacks? You know, the Jacques Renault sting. Cooper's second visit, where Mounty King was involved in a sting operation to nail this Jean Renault. You know, King basically brings attention to the Bureau from that uh, because the sting was set up for six months and Jean escapes due to Cooper's involvement. You know, they're trying to figure out if Cooper's responsible for the deaths from his trips and for the missing cocaine, which is new details to pretty much everybody, including Cooper. So to the to the charges, Cooper, you know, crossing jurisdictional borders, Cooper admits to it. Three dead bodies uh, told them his involvement and the extent of the killings. Uh, international drug trafficking. And this is where he appeals to Roger and basically says, you know, hope he knows Cooper wouldn't be involved in a drug transaction. And Roger says, I won't know that all that until you prove it, Cooper. And also the, uh, DA, the DEA has been brought in to investigate. So we get the groundwork for Denise coming. And, Co and uh, Roger says, you have 24 hours to assemble your defense. In the meantime, Cooper has to hand over his gun and his badge. And this is where we get the other instance of echoey saxophone music here. So, yeah, like a massive loss to Cooper that Cooper is experiencing. You know, it's like, here's another one. So that's kind of how we're supposed to feel about Audrey, I guess. And then, Tru uh, yeah, Truman is called in as Cooper is d being dismissed. And then Cooper, uh, you know, he gives Cooper a very unhidden bookhouse boy salute to Cooper on the way in. You know, is that suspicious much? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, Tina Rathborn, she she um, did the scene in the diner where, um, you know, they were all doing the bookhouse boys, you know, tear in the cheek kind of kind of motion. So, you know, it's like that was an easy callback for her to bring because, you know, that was that was part of her experience with Twin Peaks. But yeah, they uh, ba basically the scene wants uh, Harry to cooperate with uh, with the with Roger and Mountie King. And, um, you know, basically Cooper, I mean, Harry goes into bros before snitching. Um, 
you know, like, you know, take your cooperation and stuff it. You know, Cooper's the finest lawman I've ever known. And uh, then he says, I don't know what information you have or where you got it from, but it's dead wrong. And, you know, you would think that that would put Harry under investigation immediately. But, you know, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's the woods at work, you know, where we're just focusing on Cooper and that's all we get. But then we get the in um, in Act Four we get who the real big bad of the situation is. So, you know, Jean, Jean Renault, Jean Renault is back. And, um, you know, the, this is, um, the cycle of his revenge scheme, uh, beginning. So, you know, it's like Hank and Ernie are rolling in with girls on their backs, you know, the, at one eye jacks. And, you know, it's like they do this brotherly fighting thing. And, you know, Hank is literally strong arming Ernie into a business arrangement. And, um, you know, Jean Renault comes in and interrupts him and says, you know, so this is him. Jean pitches um, his needs to Ernie in this way that, you know, um, a recent business transaction, you know, read Audrey left us in a cash poor position. We need 125,000 immediately. And, you know, Ernie comes in with his huge bravado and is like, you know, I'm your man. And, you know, in comes Mountie King after, after Ernie talks about all, you know, his, his extensive background in this stuff. And, um, you know, Mountie King's there with a tux, just like Jean. And, you know, Ernie is introduced to King as our new broker. And, you know, we've got John uh, trying to convince a protesting Ernie to actually gamble, which to me says that Ernie actually is trying to fight against his gambling ability um, or, you know, his um, his uh, gambling addiction. I mean, and then, you know, Ernie and Hank and the the, the ladies, they all leave um, and um you know, then we've got Jean and King looking at a briefcase where there are four bags of cocaine. And he says, just enough to put the last nail in Cooper's coffin. And I want him crucified. So, you know, I, um, you know, sure, I, I can believe that Ernie doesn't want to gamble anymore. But I have zero question that King's loyalties have been officially revealed. You know, it's like rather than, you know, being in question. Like, we know that Mountie King is really just on Sean's side. You know, it's like, why is it that I don't find him being a double agent for the side of good? <laughs> like, it, it's just there's something about Mountie King that makes you not trust him. And I guess it's because he's trying to, um, you know, take down Cooper. So, you know, it's like we already kind of think of him as a bad guy. Who knows? But, yeah, I mean, with all that happening... um, you know, King actually leaves the room too. And then we've got Jean smoking in the center of the frame uh, with the red curtains around him. And that shot is gorgeous. I mean, it's just awesome looking. And, you know, it's like, I totally buy into Jean being a bad dude. But, you know, it's like, sure, that's that's going to be, um, you know, kept up with over the next couple episodes. But, um, you know, it's like, even with all these real world cycles beginning, um, there's still underneath all of it, this undercurrent of the supernatural near enough to the surface where we can kind of see signs of it. You know, even even if the show is more dealing with, you know, farcical topics at this point, it's still there. And we are going to be talking about that now. OK, so we're officially starting the last question. Uh, how do we see the supernatural in this episode? So, I mean, right off the bat, we see it with the description of Leland's possession. Um, okay, so um, 
This episode begins uh, with a shot of the interior of the Palmer house. So that means there's no exterior shot of the, uh, you know, no establishing shot of the outside of the Palmer house here. And um, this is the last time that we see the inside of the house, too. Um, when when it happened in the pilot with no exterior shot, that was kind of like there is no exterior to be seen. It's just um, the interiority of these characters. So, um, I mean, it seems like we're getting pretty close to the interiority of Sarah in this episode. You know, like she's finally um, seeing clearly and she's finally just being her authentic self. That's how I'm going to choose to read Sarah in this. As far as everything else, you know, it's like with the we see the uh, the picture of Laura on the mantle, and then there's this weird um, <laughs> golden uh, Jeffries style uh, teapot or an urn or something, kind of uh, pointing toward Laura, and then there's Leland's picture next to her on the mantle. So, you know, it pans down to the white light through white curtains with the three days later thing. So we get. Um, you know, for, you know, no Maddie on the mantle. And then we pan over and we see Doc Hayward trying to give Sarah a sedative. And, uh, you know, he says, I'd like you to take this. And then it's um, a revelation when Sarah's saying to herself, she says, Doc, I don't want it. And then she says again, but this time with a lot more sureness, I don't want it. So, you know, two coats to an understanding. Then Sarah says, I want to be there. Every part of me needs to be there for both of them. And then, you know, we see Cooper's face here to show that he's actually in the scene, too. She says, today I bury my husband next to my only child. Her grave is still so new, there's only a little bit of grass on it. So, yeah, like she's seeing clearly her own family situation, but she's still not able to mention Maddie. And neither is the show, yes. Uh, so Cooper leans in and, and talks to Palmer. Uh, I mean, talks to Sarah Palmer that... um. Mrs. Palmer, there are things dark and heinous in this world, things too terrible to tell our children. So, you know, Cooper, he has no children, and now she has no children. So sort of insensitive, but, you know, okay, I'll go with it, I guess. Um, then he says, your husband fell victim to one of those long ago when he was innocent and trusting. And, you know, okay, but... um we're coming up on the part where this is exactly where Cooper absolves Leland of all his guilt. Um, you know, it wasn't in last episode where there was a lot of nuance. It was right here. You know, does absolving of the guilt, I mean, I understand that, you know, it's probably what Sarah needs to hear, but I also think that, you know, it's like, okay, if you're willing to bury that rather than help somebody see through the truth instead of around it, you know, maybe that kind of attitude makes him a perfect future host for Bob. So anyway, while he's talking, we see Sarah's face the whole time, you know, listening to his words and reacting to his words. Dale says, Leland did not do these things, not the Leland that you know. So, you know, maybe there are just a couple of Lelands in there. You know, there's technically room for nuance, but not much. And then Sarah responds to that with, that man I saw with the long, disgusting hair. And Cooper says, he's gone forever. Which, you know, first of all, Cooper, you can't know that. And then, you know, the other part of that is, you know, he, he's essentially washing, washing the problems of worrying about nuance like that out of 
possibly the whole world with his will. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a strong sender. So is he sending his wishful thinking um, through <laughs> through the whole town, giving them permission to also forget? I mean, from a from a writing standpoint, yeah, it's kind of that way so that we can forgive everybody else for forgetting about it because, you know, it's like, OK, our main character just said is he's gone. But, you know, this wishful this wishful thinking didn't really work out too well for him in episode 29. And I don't think it quite works out well for the show right here either. But yeah, he says he's gone forever. And then Sarah responds with, so is everything I loved. And we're still on Sarah's close up, you know, her, her face close up. And Cooper's telling her, Sarah, I think it might help to tell you what happened just before Leland died. So he is coming at it from the point of view of help. You know, help is good, but right here he's just saying things the way Cooper remembers or Cooper wants to remember it. You know, um, you know, we got Sarah's face still, and he says, it's hard to realize here, he touches her forehead, and here, which we assume he's touching near her heart, what has transpired, which, you know, that move echoes Mike in episode 16, you know, that, and, um, you know, your answers are not here. They are here. And, um, you know, that basically supernaturally unlocked Laura's words inside Cooper. So is Cooper here trying to unlock an answer in Sarah here is, you know, and, you know, like, what kind of answer is it? Is it the answer that Cooper wants her to get? Or is it, you know, the real answer for Sarah that he wants her to get? Anyway, Cooper goes on and says, your husband went so far as to drug you to keep his actions secret. But before he died, Leland confronted the horror of what he'd done to Laura and agonized over the pain he caused you. And, um, okay, about the Laura part? Yeah, he did. But over the pain he caused you? No, he didn't. You know the the Laura flute theme, uh, the the Laura the Laura Palmer theme in flute uh, is playing here, and that's the same uh, flute as when Harry was uh, sticking up for Leland in the Roadhouse scene. Uh, you know, like when he's representing in front of George Sternwood. I mean George Sternwood. Good Lord, um, um, Clinton Sternwood. You know that was a bunch of um, simplified wrongness as well um you know is this a clue that we're supposed to believe some sort of gaslighting or you know plot simplification is happening possible i i think it was probably more like you know that's just the uh the kind of you know different directors so you know that's just the kind of thing you do when you're playing something that sounds really earnest but anyway cooper continues and says leland died at peace in his last moments he saw laura and he kept saying how much he loved her and I believe she welcomed him. And this is where Sarah begins to sort of smile. Then she forgave him. And Sarah has quivering lips. So now we see Cooper's face and he says, it's time. We get Sarah's close-up face again with no words from her. And then we see Cooper standing up and he says, Mrs. Palmer, I would be honored to drive you. And um, Sarah does smile at this and she collects herself and says, Leland always found the other earring. So, you know, I am willing to be charitable. You know, just from Cooper Duper podcast, she said something about how he's telling Sarah what she needs to hear at that moment. And um, 
you know, Bobsy from the Diane podcast, he basically um, backs her up because he thinks there's a uh, hypnotherapy happening with with the way that Cooper is uh, speaking so quietly and rhythmically. And, you know, it's like he um, Bobsy thought Cooper was leading Sarah into a healing state. So, you know, it's like I can kind of go with that, too. But is it healing kind of like what we're going to get with Nadine, where you have to go through a delusion first? I mean, it is Twin Peaks, so the odds are 50-50 just from, you know, glancing at the plot point. And, you know, I'm I'm willing to be charitable, too, that, you know, Cooper isn't exactly intending to be, you know, blatantly truthful, you know, but for good intentions. But, you know, good intentions only get you so far. But I do feel like um, Tina Rathborn <laughs> tacking on that that shot of the stairwell with the fan being on, you know, might actually kind of tell you something about, you know, it's like, sure, it's not actually all the way over, you know, regardless of what Cooper's telling you, you know, the um, the odd space adjacent uh, imagery is telling us otherwise. And, you know, the fan is on and there's the foreboding music at the same time. And, um, you know, Sarah's memory also has kind of a supernatural tinge to it as well. Over at the repast in the Hayward house, you know, Sarah's there talking to Eileen and Audrey, of all people. (laughs) And, um, you know, Sarah's telling a story. She says, you know, Donna came over to see Laura. Do you know what they did? It was late. We made popcorn and they made this very serious promise with each other to be best friends forever, which she says straight to Audrey. You know, it's like, dude, <laughs> that's, um, you know, that, that's potentially triggering a girl who might have issues in that regard. Um, and, um, and then Sarah says, I think it was a kind of bond against, but then she cuts herself off because she can't continue. So like, what is the bond against? And, um, you know, it cannot be said aloud now. Um, you know, Eileen, Eileen comforts her. And then, uh, Sarah says, I need to remember all of this. And, you know, remembering is hugely important. And, um, you know, this would have been literally the last line for Sarah Palmer if uh, if she hadn't been pulled back in by Lynch in episode 29. So, yeah, it's like I need to remember all of this, but she can't remember all of that and deal with it in a show whose direction is where it's going. So a lot more overtly supernatural in this episode. We've got Nadine's super strength. But, you know, of course, it's more than that. Yeah, we've got um, we've got Nadine living out her delusional fantasy, and it's you know she's doing it in a very physical world that's able to respond actively to this fantasy. Um, so right after you know right after the the uh, ceiling fan and the ominous music, uh, everything shifts over to the food being laid out on a um, on a table at the Haywards. And, um, you know, the dramatic music is still there and it stays there instead of, you know, going to a funeral. I mean, it's still dramatic and moody and everything, but, you know, um, eventually the um, the music transitions over into Audrey's prayer. You know, eventually it's also overlaid with the swishy drums and Nadine's first appearance of the episode. And, you know, she's shown from below. She's shown looking awkward. Um dressed in a really girly kind of way and like a uh in a disconcerting kind of girly way <laughs> like um and um 
you know, she's, you know, she's preoccupied with her shoes. Uh, later in that same scene, you know, we got Nadine interrupting Ed and Donna about worries of other people looking up her dress, um, you know, through her reflective shoes. And, um, you know, she she's worried about boys seeing her underpants, which is, you know, uh, like a young, young girl kind of concern, I would imagine. Yeah, like they don't they don't give her any word or they <laughs> Ed, Ed and Donna don't react to her with words at that point. And, you know, the next time we see her, it's in act two where she's, um, you know, the, the scene starts with that high school guitar cue. And, um, you know, we see the vice principal um, saying, you're asking me to admit a 35 year old woman to the senior class. And, you know, then we see on the other side of the camera, we see Jacoby and Ed across from him. And um, Ed just says, you got me there. <laughs> and then, you know, Nadine interrupts that and says, how much longer class is starting? And then she says, cheerleading tryouts today. So, you know, we've got Ed and Jacoby and now the vice principal all signing off on this progressive treatment to be medic. You know, I mean... Jacoby being there, you know, he he's uh, medically approving this, you know, even though according to secret history of Twin Peaks, he'd have his license revoked by now. Um, so, you know, potentially he's gone rogue. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm I'm assuming the timeline there is just a, um, you know, something Mark Frost wasn't exactly concerned with at the time or the uh, suspension hasn't officially happened. Really, Emily Marinelli, who's a uh, trained psychotherapist and uh, has written a very good article that I've referenced about Nadine already. Uh, she was on Cream Corn in the Universe with Colin. She really appreciated how Jacoby was thinking outside of the box to support her. And, you know, he's um, he's thinking of the holistic health and wellness of his patient, you know, rather than just going to medication. So, um she actually really liked um, this whole thing. You know, it's like supporting what Nadine needs to essentially get through her delusion rather than cover over the delusion. You know, it's like you got to push through it until you can get to the truth. So, yeah, anyway, she's officially approved by all three sides of society of Twin Peaks. And, um, you know, in the next time we see her in Act 3, Nadine's trying out for the steeplejacks cheerleading. And, you know, she does tumbling, which was like Olympic-level uh, somersaults over and over and over. And then she throws one of the other teenagers, or, you know, one of the teenagers of the school into a corkscrew. And um, so, you know, we get, we get her arc being from delusional at the repast to sanctioned and assisted delusion to entirely superhuman so you know when the throne student lands you know she holds up her victorious arms and you know there's this massive fake sounding applause that goes with it too you know essentially when dreams are assisted in twin peaks the dreams seem to be able to take hold of a person's reality and become more and more true or you know at least you know maybe not true exactly but more solid you know, even over the course of three scenes within one episode. So, you know, in more logy terms, you know, it's like her delusions are sneaking into what the viewers and characters can experience. So it, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's like she's in a delusional red room adjacent state and um, she's able to manifest it physically into the world because of how strongly she's pumping it out into the world. 
and other people may not completely see what she sees completely, but you know, she's still manifesting it out loud and visually. And in a more worldly way of, you know, like possible <laughs> supernatural undertones, we've got Norma, if you could believe it. Um, we've got um you know she she's taking down tablecloths in the fourth in the fourth act scene, and you know Vivian's next to her asking about it, and um, you know Norma says, "Well, the critic has spoken, you know, with a bad review," and you know Vivian says to get this little drama over with. You know Vivian admits to being empty once, and um, then she says, "I wanted to give you a good review, but it's just not a good restaurant." And, you know, Norma talks about how this place is her livelihood. And, you know, like, what about the standards of common decency and kindness? And, yeah, I mean, Vivian, you know, talking about ethical standards, you know, it's like, well, just don't review it at all, right? Um, so Norma wants Vivian out of my life. I don't want to be hurt by you anymore. So Norma's want is to not be hurt by Vivian anymore. And, um, you know, we never hear about Vivian again. Ernie stays on for a few more episodes and he never talks about Vivian. You know, when Annie shows up, they never talk about Vivian. And like, it's almost like, and and, you know, I know it's a writer's thing, you know, like where we weren't going to get Jane Greer back again. So, you know, it's like, there's no need to talk about a character that won't be appearing. You know, it's just economics of, you know, (laughs) having only 45 minutes to work with. I get it. But, um, is Norma a strong sender here? You know, allowing her one-space timeline to sever their relationship, even in history, you know, the past dictates the future or whatever. It's like sometimes the future dictates the past, according to uh, a time-traveling Cooper, um, and, you know, being close to portals. So, you know, um, you know, we know Norma's pies appear to have a certain power because they're baked with her love. So, you know, like, do her wants actually have power, too? And she actually wants Vivian to not even be her real mother. She's going to be rewritten into becoming a stepmother. And, you know, I know that's all rushed in on the fly. And I know it's the same situation in secret history when it comes to Norma's backstory. But in continuity, you could technically explain it that way. And it still works logically with some of the other things we see here. Now, on to Josie, there's not exactly lodge adjacency with her in this episode per se. But, you know, she ends up in a drawer pole and we first saw her in a mirror. So, you know, what what we see here is at, at Cooper's house, the um, the cabin in the woods or whatever it is, we see Harry sleeping. And the soundscape track that they're using is the same soundscape that they used when Cooper was first aligning and meeting the giant at the uh, season two premiere. So, um, you know, Harry's in bed. He sees somebody fumbling outside and we see their shadow past the window or past by the window, kind of almost like that weird shape behind the curtains as it passes across um, from Cooper's side to Laura's side um, in the first Red Room dream. You know, Harry has a gun, he opens the door on them, and it's Josie who kind of faints her way through the threshold into Harry's arms. You know, we, we've got Harry uh, laying her down in the bed, and he asks zero questions. He voices nothing. Um, you know, he doesn't even be, he seem to be concerned about why she's in the state that she's in, or 
even her lack of responsiveness. You know, it's like not her responsiveness anyway. You know, instead, he's overcome with his wants at this point. And, you know, his wants are, go into immediate kissing, and that's when the scene ends. So, um, you know, is is this Harry just being completely oblivious to the fact that there's, like, somebody who's, like, responding to seeming trauma right in front of him? Or is it kind of like how, um, you know, Lana, she's got these pheromones that make people wild and, you know, wanting. So, you know, Josie's already kind of lodge adjacent. So, you know, it's like, you know, Lana got repurposed into basically looking like she's always around the presence of the owl ring. You know, Josie's always kind of been worldly with the mill plot and everything, but she's always been adjacent to the darkness in the woods, too. So, you know, could we explain Harry's thing as, you know, he's still half asleep. He's um, really close to his dreamy state anyway. So, like, he just kind of continues on in that way because Josie's also kind of adjacent to it. You know, it's like, who knows? But um, I'd... You know, I, I hope it's kind of like that, <laughs> just based on the fact that, you know, it's like, who wants Harry to be that oblivious to someone in pain? You know, it's like there there are there should be a lodge adjacency attached to it. Okay, another reach kind of like Norma, but we've got Catherine. You know, she's worldly all the way. Um, but you know, here she's intentionally lying. She's dressing up in her um you know, in, in this uh, <laughs> in this explorer garb and a walking stick, you know, it kind of rivals um, Andy's upcoming fashion show looks, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, what she's doing here is um, she's creating a story for Harry over the actual truth so that that can replace the truth on public record entirely. And, you know, Catherine really is controlling the narrative here, you know, just like just like other stories replacing truer stories, she uses the same language that Leland ends up using. So, you know, Harry asks, you know, aren't you dead? Does Pete know? And, you know, this is the first lie that Catherine goes on record with. You know, apparently Pete doesn't, according to Catherine here, even though we know this is a lie, you know, along with some other things. So that's how we're framing this conversation for the viewers. Um, you know, Harry says, all things considered, welcome home. And, you know, Catherine asks, any questions? Am I under suspicions? And Harry says, depends on the answers I get. Maybe you should call a lawyer. And, you know, this is a really, this is a really good scene between uh, Michael Ankeen and Piper Laurie, by the way. Um, I, I just appreciate their, um, their way of like relating to each other. But yeah, so, you know, so Harry says, you know, maybe you should get a, a call a lawyer. And Catherine says, that won't be necessary. I have nothing to hide. Uh-huh. To answer, where the hell have you been the last two weeks? She begins with, do you believe in guardian angels? She's, so she's always kind of framing it with this um, this faith-based argument to begin with. And, you know, she says she believed an angel saved her life. And then she tells the story correctly so far about, you know, finding Shelly, um, you know, getting the call to go to the mill. And I think that was from Hank, um, but she didn't necessarily know that. And, um, you know, so like, yeah, uh, all that stuff kind of matches up. And then she possibly strays with no idea how she escaped. And, um, you know, then she found herself in the woods so, you know, the woods where the supernatural is, and she was afraid, which means she's kind of on a negative frequency here. Um, you know, for the first time in her whole life, she was afraid. 
So, you know, was she or wasn't she? I don't know. But, you know, she's using the language that puts you in a weird state. But now we get definite fabrication because she dragged herself through the woods and the sky lightened and a path began to look familiar. So, I mean, that all sounds kind of lodgy. Um, and then she's flooded with memories from her childhood, kind of like that gum you like will come back in style. You know, it's like the memories from her childhood connotes, you know, a supernatural level or, you know, at least the language that the supernatural speaks in. And, um, you know, this is when she came across her family's summer cabin in Pearl Lakes. So this is the second time that a cabin in Pearl Lakes is tied to nostalgia and childhood memories, which is, you know, coded language at the Lodge Space Denizen speak in. And it's the second time that the speaker is um, using it to tell a story to the law enforcement and is full of shit about it, too. You know, making alternate memories tied to the past. So if you're making these alternate memories tied to the past in an official way where you're talking to law enforcement about it, are you changing the past to dictate the future? Yes. And it also kind of explains how it's uh, more like gaslighting than, you know, finding a reality. It's like you're <laughs> you're recreating the past to dictate the future that you're currently in, which in other words is a present, except it's not the present. It's just the future that you want. Anyway, Pearl Lakes is always associated in this series with fabrication or, you know, at, at minimum, you know, assuming Catherine and Leland really were like sort of telling the truth in a way, um, at minimum, it's with flawed memories. And then Catherine definitely caps it off with, you know, the fabrication that she wants, where only a guardian angel could have got her there. And she waited there the whole time. You know, nothing to do with Tojimura. Nope, not not even going to mention that whole uh, subterfuge. Uh, you know, and then there, you know, she was there with tuna fish and a loaded gun. And what made her come back? Uh, you know, one of <laughs> one, a great line delivery from Piper Laurie here. Uh, she says, I ran out of tuna fish. <laughs> And um, so, you know, now we're going to move on from fake guardian angels to genuine supernatural entities because they're here, too. And we're going to we're going to finally talk about Major Briggs. So at the wake, uh, Jacoby and Major Briggs are uh, speaking to each other and kind of checking in with Cooper and Harry at the wake. They're asking, you know, like, what are you going to be doing now? And um you know, Cooper says he's stockpiled up a couple of weeks of vacation time. Now might be the time to cash him in. And um, Briggs right then invites him on an incredibly pleasant evening of night fishing. And kind of curious what anybody else thinks. You know, it's like, does Jacoby look as jealous as uh, as Harry does right here when um, when Cooper says aces? But yeah, so anyway, we don't see Major Briggs again. Um, you know, like we'll see, we'll see Cooper preparing for the thing, you know, getting out his gear and everything. Then we see them, you know, we first hear them, you know, it's like they show the forest, you know, it's, it's the woods, it's at night and, you know, it's like mid paragraph dialogue, you know, Cooper, Cooper, um, yeah, like we, we, um, we basically see, okay, in scene one, Cooper was the witness for Sarah. And in this last scene, he's in Sarah's spot as the subject. Uh, to begin with. And, you know, Cooper's talking about how at the time I did what I thought was, was right. I now must, or 
I must now face the consequences. And Briggs says, you can do no more. So, you know, he just told, um, he just told Briggs about his, um, you know, investigation via Roger Hardy and Mountie King. And, you know, we see them, they're cooking marshmallows on sticks over a fire. And, you know, this is the, um, you know, this is the ushering, you know, with fire as part of their imagery and eating too. It's, it's transitioning literally from Cooper's physical world plot to the first instance of, um, you know, Briggs's, um, introduction to the supernatural plot physically yeah so and and you know also i'll note that this is the first we see of cooper's flannel period and i know he goes back into the suit for a little while longer but yeah um this is also kind of a transition scene from cooper the agent into cooper the twin peaks um resident let's say and at this point with food that they're cooking themselves and over the fire um cooper switches over to well major i find myself thinking a lot about bob if he truly exists and um you know briggs says i now i ponder the same question continuously since the aura was revealed cooper you know cooper says i try to imagine him out there incarnate looking for another victim to inhabit why would he imagine that? You know, <laughs> you're you're right next to the woods where things like that manifest if you think about it too hard. So uh yeah, I mean that could be another um, you know, future host uh kind of uh tip off or you know, cue or something. But then Briggs says there are powerful forces of evil. It is some men's fate to face great darkness. We each choose how to react. If the choice is fear, then we become vulnerable to darkness. There are ways to resist. You, sir, were blessed with certain gifts. In this respect, you're not alone. Have you ever heard of the White Lodge? So, um, you know, presumably Briggs is leading into talking about, um, approaching the, the, um, what do you call it? The the great darkness with love, because you know if if you've heard of the White Lodge, then you can kind of see that the mindset is that their approach is to approach the darkness from love rather than fear, uh, because that is a dichotomy that um, Major Briggs is massively associated with, as is the mythology of the show. You know, Major Briggs can kind of recognize the same stuff in Cooper that Cooper recognizes in himself to call himself a strong sender, and. Um, you know, it's like, how do you break up this scene so that we don't dig into, um, you know, the, the polarity of fear versus love? Um, well, Cooper says the White Lodge and he eats a marshmallow. I don't believe that I have. So he's kind of eating food to prime himself for this future interaction with uh, with the you know, the, the hooded character in the future. And, um, you know, Major Briggs is also eating from the fire. And, um, yeah, so, you know, Cooper, uh, well, we actually see um, an ominous whooshing camera <laughs> pushing in through the leaves, almost like it's like some kind of like scurrying um, super fast alien or something. And um, 
<clears throat> Cooper interrupts by saying, Major, I'm going to take a moment here. Feel the call of nature. There's nothing quite like urinating in the open air. I look forward to hearing more about this white lodge. And, um, you know, Briggs laughs. He gives him a thumbs up, which is a nonverbal cue. Um, so he's almost getting ready to to be on a different frequency if you go by the language that the um, that the waiter uses. And um, yeah, <laughs> the Cooper Duper pod had a good a good bit about this. You know, it's like women writing men. You know, it's like everybody complains about men writing women and like not understanding their inner workings. But we've got a uh, <laughs> a writer who um, who's a lady and a director who's a lady. And, uh, you know, it's like, what do they like to do? They like to pee on things out in the open in the woods. <laughs> and uh, it, it's kind of it, it's kind of funny like that. It makes me also think about the, um, you know, the Hank and Ernie roughhousing scene, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's just funny more than anything to me, but we've got Briggs who's still on camera and he hears an owl and, um, you know, Cooper readies himself to pee and he notices the owl too. And then we're shown the owl looking down and, you know, Cooper, you know, we see Cooper again and there's white light from uh somewhere else actually still lighting uh lighting up cooper and um you know it's from the campsite direction and briggs shouts cooper and then we see briggs in the light so you know now the screen is all white and as we see it again um there's a cloaked silhouetted figure who's there in the woods and um Rob King from his article, the 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 um the twenty five YL article, Twin Peaks episode seventeen, mid season mirage. Rob says this is our famous introduction to the White Lodge, which can be chased back to Alice Bailey's eternalization of the hierarchy. Examples: the black the Black Lodge, so called, is occupied with the form aspect of manifestation, the White Lodge, with the consciousness aspect. Um, the organized effort efforts of the Great White Lodge are directed toward lifting the organized forces of materialism to a higher and spiritual plane. It even makes an appearance, uh, th this is Rob King uh, switching from a quote to saying, um, it even makes an appearance in James Joyce's Ulysses in a section discussing theosophy and Helena Blavatsky. Dunlop. Judge, the noblest Roman of them all, A.E. Arvel, the name ineffable, in heaven height, K.H., their master, whose identity is no secret to adepts. Brothers of the Great White Lodge always watching to see if they can help. And then uh, King continues, we also see a black hooded character in the woods, often associated with the Dugpas of Wyndham Earl's later Project Blue Book rant. but. And now I'm going to go into my own words and say, but I think that character is merely backlit and works more for the White Lodge because, um, you know, Mark Frost himself says this about about the dweller on the threshold. Uh, he says it's the dweller on the threshold. And he says, I wrote that scene. So, <laughs> yeah, that whole bit about, uh, you know, uh, women writing men. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. Maybe Mark Frost just thought it was funny. But anyway, he said, um, uh, Mark Frost said that in um, Conversations with Mark Frost by David Bushman. He says, 
As I think back to that moment, I believe that's what we were trying to convey. Major Briggs was about to be confronted by the sum total of all his fears and doubts and self-doubts. And then about the dweller on the threshold specifically, he says, as I understand the idea, the dweller on the threshold is something anyone on the spiritual path eventually has to confront. The accumulation of all the person's wants, dreams, desires, and negativity. Somewhere along the path to enlightenment, those qualities have to be confronted and transcended. It's apparently a step on the path to enlightenment that requires this sort of ordeal or test. I see it as, a metaf as metaphorical in some ways, but also as a useful psychological model for how a psyche or a soul develops over time. At some point, you have to confront that which you're most afraid. So, I mean, that that sums up Mark Frost's whole, um, you know, like what he gets out of the theosophy that he installed into the Twin Peaks mythology. And you kind of see how it matches up with the Jungian side of you, too, where, you know, a psyche or a soul, you know, it's like a, the um, the integration of an entire self. Um until you know there's only one <laughs> you know it, it all it all matches up nicely but back to the scene itself you know the the scene is still well lit with that white light um you know we see cooper running back from the woods and we watch him seeing nothing um then you know there's the white light again completely covering the screen the uh the same forest shot where we saw the hooded creature except that you know the the hooded entity is not there anymore and we see Cooper running toward the light again. And, you know, we see the scurrying camera again, except this time I think it's going away. I mean, it gives the impression that it's going away. And um, then we see Cooper scared again. And he's lit uh, with the white light. And then the light fades on, you know, on him. And now he's just basically back in the forest alone again um with normal lighting that was before this scene you know like back when he was uh cooking marshmallows with the major you know he's looking ahead of him in an absence that we're not allowed to see because the camera's pointing at him not where he's looking so um i will dig deeper into where briggs went you know later once he actually returns and we see that one scene where he's sitting on the throne um but as far as frost says here um, you know, he continued on with David Bushman where he says, um, where Briggs went when he disappeared, it's his first exposure to the place that he's taken to or escapes to in the return. That may or may not involve what we might more conventionally call a UFO abduction. That's a prosaic way of describing something a lot more mysterious. So, yeah, I mean, here we get, um, you know, in concrete terms, that the UFO stuff is supposed to lay nicely within all the um, spiritual mythology of Twin Peaks. Now, was this enough of a supernatural, um, you know, hook to to keep viewers hooked into the show? Um, you know, it's like I like the establishment that people can be abducted into supernatural spaces. You know, connecting connecting the alien abductions into previous show mythology really was a good way to anchor the mythology into the um, the uh, the pre existing esoterics that um, you know listeners of Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell would really be able to play along with. And I know that's the stuff that Mark Frost was a, I mean, he was an avid listener of that show. And it's kind of, you know, it's like, uh, 
you know, everything from aliens, a conspiracy theory, like all that stuff, you know, it's, it's fun to talk about things like that. I'm sure like, you know, Bigfoot came up, you know, things like that. You know, Mark Frost always wanted to have this level of audience participation and the audience really was already participating. I'm sure they'd already um, gotten that pile of the, uh, the Usenet archive printouts. Uh, so like they knew that it was in there and I bet that this was Frost kind of like seeding one of those kind of things so that, you know, this extra previous mythology would also get cross-referenced within Twin Peaks by the viewers that are online. So I like how it hooked in the supernatural, but was it a, was it a successful, um, a successfully established cliffhanger? You know, I think it's probably less so. It probably needed to be more present with what we'd heard all episode. Um, you know, either build up the supernatural and or and or the dread, um, so that we kind of felt the magnitude of what actually happened to Briggs, rather than being a jump scare, like I said earlier. Or, um, you know, maybe they would have went in a different direction and, you know, you know, like, like what if Earl showed up in the repast and like abducted somebody from there? You know, I mean, there, there's, <laughs> there's ways it could have worked out where, um, it would have given people more, um, need to keep going. And, you know, I mean, I even said myself that, um, it kind of felt like we were getting permission from Cooper and the show to say goodbye to everything. That said, the way they filmed the, um, the final scene was great. And I think it really was great. It just kind of happened to be more of an epilogue rather than integrated in the whole episode. All right. Well, that's all we got for this one. I'm going to be back next, um, well, two weeks from now with, um, with episode 18 and, um, yeah, the 19th overall episode of Twin Peaks, but we're going to we're going to give you the sign off. You have been listening to Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore the underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as 25 Yards Later and Tony's Tall Tales. And join all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and you know, content on other many TV shows at tvobsessive.com and 25yearslatersite.com. And if you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week as we cover episode 18, the 19th overall episode of Twin Peaks. And until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. It's a way to kind of deepen and expand deepen the universe that the show takes place a gift